Well, hello, my friends. Uh, this is Science Mike, your host for Ask Science Mike. And usually we have a whole ritual for this podcast with a little a little short intro and then a theme song and then a vamp and then some announcements. And, and we're not doing any of that today because this is a special episode. And if you're the kind of person who usually skips forward trying to find the episode, you're listening to it now. There is no announcements loop on this week's show. Um, I've got a lot to share, I think, that is important and significant. Basically, it's been a tough year for me with my health. Um, I've had uh, a heart disease known as pericarditis that I've been treating and following the recommendations of my cardiologist and my primary care doctor. And, uh, it gets better and then it gets bad again and it gets better and then it gets bad again. And what they're telling me is I haven't made enough changes to manage my stress levels and anxiety. I basically have to live an almost stress free life for some periods of months in order for this condition to get better. And you all have been so great about supporting me. I mean, I think of the GoFundMe. I think about all the cards and letters and tweets and Facebook posts saying, Science Mike, take as much time away as you need. And I thought I did, but I hadn't. Um, so what I've been tasked with doing is to only do things that don't elevate my heart rate other than light physical exercise. So if I'm doing something that involves talking in a microphone or standing on stage, and it's like ramping my heart rate through the roof, that's something I need to not do for now. But I can keep doing anything that doesn't ramp my heart rate through the roof. And I have really exciting news. Ask Science Mike does not send my heart rate through the roof. So uh, I'm really going to be focusing on this podcast for a little while. This is going to be uh, my main way of talking with all of you. Uh, just for this season, while I, I try to get my heart in better shape. Um, along with that, I've actually dropped all events for the rest of this year, except for two, which is the Christian Transhumanist Conference, October 19th in Nashville, uh, put on by my friend Micah. And then, of course, uh, episode 200 of Ask Science Mike, which is being recorded in Los Angeles, and I'm really excited about uh, that is sold out, but we are regularly, as people cancel, adding you know three or four tickets a day back into the sales. So if you just check every day, I bet I bet you can get in. I'm sorry that sold out quickly, but it's it's a small room, and there's a reason it's a small room. This is a season for me to get back to my roots. Uh, a lot of you found me more recently after my first book, or found me as a podcaster. But believe it or not, my work in helping people deal with the fear involved in transitions during life, those involving faith and those not, didn't start on podcasts or on the internet at all. And something has gotten lost, at least for me, with millions of listeners and big giant rooms with stage lights and security. That's not a natural feeling thing for me. This whole science mic thing, it came from lunch tables. It came from people reading my blog and saying, I don't feel like I have anyone to talk to, and me saying, yes, I'd love to talk with you, and going to lunch with people. That's, that's where this all started. 
I literally every day would go to lunch with a different person at first friends and then strangers to talk through people's fear and anxiety around their beliefs about God or their understanding of science or their sexuality. And I was never acting as anyone's therapist. I was just someone who had been heartbroken too and who reads a lot. (laughs) And if you kind of pay attention to my work, that's really the two dynamics you see. I'm someone who reads a lot, who has also been heartbroken a lot. So when people are sad, I know what sadness feels like. When people are afraid, I know what it's like to be afraid. And I don't judge people because they feel lonely or afraid or sad. I understand those feelings. And it grew from lunch tables to living rooms. Uh, small groups of people would like invite me to just answer questions about life and faith and science. That's it. That's all I did. And then somehow I got discovered. And I have books and podcasts and management and an events manager and all this these people that surround me and enable the work. But my friends, I just have to tell you, sometimes I miss just sitting in small rooms with all of you and talking about our feelings and sharing the genuine joy I have at learning new things. That's, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning. I think there's something amazing about honoring curiosity with dignity. That saying every sincere question deserves a place to be answered, even if sometimes the answers are hard to hear or even hard to find. That doesn't mean those questions shouldn't have a place to go. So I have lots of ideas about how for this season I can go small again. And uh, kind of the first thing I tried in that idea Uh, was I got back into a living room. So this week's episode you're about to hear is just me sitting in a living room with some friends and some friends of friends talking about our feelings, talking about our curiosity. You know, my heart rate was just steady the whole time. I'm not going anywhere, by the way. I'm not hanging up the microphone. I've got a lot more work to do, a lot more stories to tell. And a lot more of your stories to hear. But I wonder if you'd be willing to go with me on a journey for the next few months. Back to where this all began for me. And that's seeing your faces and holding your hands. And honoring your curiosity and your pain. So without further ado, I'd just like to share with you what I'd call an original version of Ask Science Mike. With no stage, no microphones, and no PR people. Just me and some friends. Oh gosh, and I almost forgot one last thing before we do the show. And this is really, really, really important. We're getting ready to send out the early copies of my next book, which is called You're a Miracle and a Pain in Your Ass. And uh, it's it's a book about feelings and and growth and pain and suffering and, and living a good life, basically. 
and you can get one of those copies. My publisher was asking me who all the people who are in media or have platforms. So if you're a social media influencer or you play in a band or you know, you're on TV or whatever it is, I know I have lots of friends who do those things, but the way I see the world, that's invisible to me. <laughs> I don't really think of people in terms of what they do. And so I don't know who I know who does those kind of things. So if you're a person who is in media, if you're a person who has a platform of some kind, you can get an early copy of my next book for free. You just need to email arc at sciencemikelabs.com. That's arc at sciencemikelabs.com. Just send an email, let us know uh, what you do, and then you know, we'll send that list to the publisher and you get my next book months before anybody else for free. Uh, you know, they're trying to build buzz. It's all part of book marketing. Very exciting. I will tell you, this book, is it's my heart. This one feels very, very personal in a way that nothing I've ever done before is, uh, which sounds strange for me as someone who shares their deepest, darkest thoughts and feelings for a living. But I learned a lot about myself and about life and about emotions and uh, about the things sometimes we have difficulty talking about in the process of writing this book. And I really think, gosh, I really think this book could help a lot of people have new insights about themselves too. So if you'd like an early copy, just email arc at sciencemikelabs.com. And now for serious, for real. Let's head to the living room for this conversation with some friends. My question is, uh, is there any kind of scientific evidence or an alternative scientific explanation for like a collective subconscious? Ooh, man, swinging hard right out the <laughs> gate. <laughs> Uh, that is such a hard question to answer because the term consciousness is so poorly defined in science. That is one of the great unsolved philosophic and scientific questions is what is consciousness and where does it come from? Um, in the world of neurology, there are two main schools of thought about where human consciousness comes from. Uh, one is a model called the Global Neuronal Workspace Model. And basically your consciousness is the convergence of all your structures in your brain where they share awareness. So you may not realize this, um, but your brain isn't really a brain. Your brain is like a house built in California. It originally started small and then people just kept adding on to it in a very strange assortment. Have you ever noticed the interesting floor plans we have here? That happened with your brain, but over billions of years of evolution. So like in the base of your brain, you have a, a structure that's very, very similar to a fish's brain. And then wrapped around that are structures very similar to a frog's brain. And then wrapped around that is very similar to like a, an opossum's brain. And then wrapped around that, it's like a monkey brain. And then finally, um, about the same thickness as a tortilla and actually about the same diameter is the neocortex. That's the part of your brain that makes you a person. It does language, philosophy, art, all those wonderful things. It's, it's that thick. 
The part of your brain that controls your agency and willpower is as thick as a tortilla. It's right behind your forehead. It's about as big around as a quarter. The part of your brain that controls your emotions and your impulses is about the size of a brick. So this explains why impulse control is really hard. Like, we've got a plate of brownies. This is LA, so I'm pretty impressed. But there's been this epic struggle for most people in the room tonight of like the quarter tissue going like, no brownies. And the brick going, yeah, brownies. <laughs> Given enough time, the brick always wins. Now, why do I mention that in the context of consciousness? What are we aware of moment by moment? The quarter or the brick? Or as Jonathan Haidt would say, the elephant or the rider. Our subconscious mind being an elephant, very powerful, not that intelligent. The rider, more sophisticated, but with very little control over the elephant. The global neuronal workspace model says that things are pulled from different elements of the brain and your consciousness is just a shared circuit where those things converge. And so moment by moment that drifts through your brain. So when someone cuts you off in traffic, your global neuronal workspace is more associated with your amygdala, which is a, a little almond-sized patch of tissue deep in the brain that controls anger. And then your amygdala says an excellent response is some sort of dominance display and it acts quickly. Whereas right now, everyone's probably in a much more cerebral headspace. Your global neur neuronal workspace is closer to the surface. In this model, it moves through the brain. There's another model called information integration theory. And this is the idea that our consciousness is associated with physical sensation and happens primarily on a strip of tissue um, towards the back of the brain and the neocortex. That is where the raw sensation of touch becomes something much more delightful, like sensual pleasure. Those are the two leading schools of thought in neuroscience. That's pretty hard to stretch into some kind of collective consciousness. But if you look at a model of consciousness more like the physicist Michio Kaku, who says that consciousness is simply a model of reality and a feedback loop with reality itself. I'm sure everybody got that the first time. Um, in that model, a basic consciousness would be a thermostat. Why? Because a thermostat knows about what the temperature is and it can respond to it. So Brent's thermostat right now knows that the house is about 77 degrees and is trying to cool the house to 73 degrees, which will probably take about two hours. It will stop once the room cools. So the thermostat's aware of reality and makes changes response to what it does in reality, so it's a loop. In Kaku's model, consciousnesses get more sophisticated with complexity. So like a plant is more conscious than a thermostat because a plant knows soil pH and humidity and temperature. It knows if an animal's biting it. It knows if another plant's trying to hide its sunlight. Then you get something like a beetle that has to move around. It has to know where to find other beetles to make more beetles. It has to know where to find smaller bugs to eat. You get past that and you get into something like a social mammal, like wolves. And what's interesting about social mammals is their consciousness has to be aware of other consciousnesses. So if you're a wolf, you have to know how popular you are with other wolves. You have to know if the alpha wolf likes you or not, right? Which means you have to run a model of another brain in your own brain, which is why social mammals have such big brains. Then you get to like what Kaku would call the ultimate consciousness on the planet, and that's human consciousness, which is different than other social mammals in that our model of reality includes time. 
We're aware of the past and the future, which is very, very rare in the animal kingdom. What's interesting to me in that idea of consciousness is you could consider an ant conscious, yes, but you could also consider an ant colony conscious, a superorganism. You social insects coordinate their actions together in a cohesive way, way with the environment. And the only animals I can think of that form larger colonies than bees and ants are in fact homo sapiens. So if we take a feedback loop model of consciousness, then media, culture, language, amplified empathy, all of these things actually in a very real and scientific way produce a collective global consciousness of billions of people which is locked in the same kind of moment-by-moment -moment debates about policy and religion and economics as our individual brains are about whether or not we should eat a brownie. Uh, the follow-up question would be, how do you feel, or where, with that, we're now on the topic of like evolution and where we're going, Yep. and where we are with like creative or like uh, Darwinism versus where we're going next with like, you know, bionic, if we, if we ultimately become bionic or if we are ultimately uh, interfering and creating new genes and creating, almost creating superhumans. Mm. Uh, where do you feel like with that, on the back of what you just said, where we are in that process of like billions of years of evolution come to our brain, but it seems now that we're evolving in the way so much faster than mm. we did. Mm. And it seems to be going quicker and quicker and quicker. So here's a couple of interesting points in the data. Some studies are showing that the rate of genetic mutation is actually happening faster right now than it ever has which means we are literally evolving faster than we have at least. Naturally? Well, that's the question. Right. Um, yeah, is it naturally? Um, we think mutation rates are so high because human populations are interbreeding so voraciously across the globe, and we're exposing ourselves to lots and lots of disease because of global travel. Now, that raises an interesting question. I've always thought it interesting how we make this divide between like natural and man-made, but we were made by nature. And like, if you're a zoologist and you look at this house, like one way of looking at this is, is like a human nest, not some artificial structure. Uh, the question is, has an animal ever self-directed its evolution through its behavior as much as we are? And I don't think that's right. the case. What's interesting though is we think like, ah, gene therapy and, and um, bionics and, and, and machine intelligence and all these things. What we're actually seeing is since the dawn of agriculture, our brains have been getting smaller, our teeth have been getting smaller, and our bodies have been getting smaller. Isn't that interesting? We got like suddenly all this nutrition, and at first we did get a bit bigger in the age of agriculture, then we started shrinking. And you'll see these kind of macro trends for a while. Americans have been getting bigger and bigger and not more obese, like right now, I mean taller, more muscle mass, that was due to great nutrition. Right now we're starting to shrink again because Americans eat a lot of junk food. 
Um, but when you look at the changes in brain capacity, body mass, and the ratio of brain capacity to body mass, especially the every decreasing size of our teeth, you see the same changes happening in our populations that you see in pigs and cows and chickens compared to their pre-agrarian forebears. We appear to be self-domesticating. Right which is wonderful in some ways, because before we self-domesticated, we were the most violent animal on the planet. Before agrarian societies, the most common way for a hominid to die was to be killed by another hominid. So us domesticating ourselves, I think, is actually like a really important and necessary step in potentially keeping the species around for a while. The like deeper philosophic questions of now this kind of self-domesticated primate species of hominid homo sapiens beginning to modify and edit their own DNA. Yeah, this is, um, you know, when we split the atom, we can power cities or level them. And I think a lot of scientists agree that genetic power is kind of on that same Curve. So is it, would it be great to like eliminate congenital heart defects in infants? Absolutely, that, that would be wonderful. Would it be great to eliminate Down syndrome? Well, that depends on what culture you ask. In some cultures in Europe, people are already doing that. Um, and then communities of Down, Down syndrome people around the world find that quite horrific. So the thing about science is, by its own design, it can't tell you what to do with the insights it produces. Science can't answer questions of beauty. Um, science can't uh, address moral concerns. And science can't tell you what to do with science. You need another moral philosophy laid on top of that. What we do know is that once things are discovered through science, you can't just make them not happen, which means the question is not what is science, what will science allow us to do in gene therapy? What culture and moral philosophies will we create on top of that? And um, one of the things I like most about myself is I know when to quit. And I don't feel qualified to answer where that line is on what we edit and what we don't. Uh, what I do know is the pattern for our species is we tend to wait too long to examine questions before acting, and we don't want to do that with gene therapy. We're already seeing in agriculture, we're in LA, right? So everybody's like, well, I don't eat GMO food. Yeah, you do. All agriculture is genetically modified. Not, you couldn't eat a truly wild banana. They're, they have tough husks, they're full of seeds. Every banana you've ever eaten has been genetically modified over thousands of years. And you can, through crossbreeding, just as selectively place genes as you can with actual genetic editing. But what we have seen already, whether or not we're gene splicing in the GMO way, our genetic modifications to crops has created these monocultures that make them incredibly susceptible to disease and pestilence. We have a lot of crop failures that we didn't used to have because of agricultural monoculture. 
And if certain genes become trendy on, I was trying to think of a pun for Twitter and use DNA, but it's beyond me. Um, if there was a, a genetic social media site where like this week, this is the hot new gene for people to have, you would not want a genetic monoculture for humanity because all it takes is one virus to come through and wipe out most of the species. So in some way, our current evolution-driven genetic lottery system is well-tuned to coexist with the true dominating life force on this planet, which is bacteria. Do you feel like what's, what's happening is natural, or do you feel like we are intervening and speeding it along? That was kind of what I was trying to get at. Do you feel that our, our, at the rate we are educating ourselves and at the rate we are finding these things out, are we, are we pushing along what would be naturally mm. happening? Are we, are we way far ahead where we should be? Or are we, is this all, are we right where we are because we are evolved as, as humans on this earth? Are yes. Kind of getting to a place. I would say if you thought like an anthropologist yeah. and you look at the arc of our species from our emergence, you know, let's say 150 to 250,000 years ago to today, accelerating change is the natural behavior of homo, sapien, homo sapiens. That's what we do. We are change accelerators. The question is, are we capable of being more thoughtful? It, is it, whether it's natural or not for us to slow down, I think it's a skill we need to learn. Because if you look at our population growth curve, have you heard of R-selected and K-selected species? Anybody? No? Okay, that's a deep cut. Um, there's basically two strategies for creating new life. One is the like, lay a bunch of eggs, thousands of eggs, and take off. And the ones that make it, make it. That's one strategy. The other strategy is more like a dolphin or an elephant or humans have few offspring, pay a lot of attention to them, and see how they do. And if you look at the way populations grow, there's a difference between R selection and K selection. What's weird about us is we have an elephant-style offspring nurturing program with almost a bacterial style population explosion curve. So what this is terrifying for people to study science is bacteria, yeast, locusts, any of these rapid reproducing organisms, the way they control their populations is to grow, consume everything there is to be consumed, and have mass starvation and crash. The climate is telling us right now that if we don't learn to slow down, our population is going to look a lot more like the growth curve of yeast than of elephants. Um, and so whether with natural or unnatural, there is absolutely a need for us as a species to become slower, to become more contemplative, and become more aware of the way our lifestyle multiplied by billions affects the very eco-webs that support our existence. This episode of Ask Science Mike is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I think it's really fitting because what we're doing on this program by showing our feelings in a vulnerable way and celebrating curiosity is ultimately 
focusing on mental health and emotional awareness. And BetterHelp has some amazing tools to help you do that. It's an online counseling service that lets you speak with a licensed therapist about issues you could be facing in your own life in an environment that's convenient to you because you can talk on the phone, you can video chat, you can text or use in-app chat in order to communicate with your therapist. They specialize in all areas of mental health. And BetterHelp is available on a sliding scale so people at all income levels can get therapy at a price they can afford. Best of all, BetterHelp is available to Science Mike listeners for 10% off their first month service. And you can learn more and sign up by going to betterhelp.com slash sciencemike where you can fill out a questionnaire and they'll match you with a counselor that you will love. Again, just go to betterhelp.com slash sciencemike. So my question is, in, in light of the impending global warming crisis, do you feel like, tell me the, the pros and cons of change from a top-down hierarchy, like governmental change versus a bottom-up decentralized um, like strategy to change? Hmm. Neither of them work. That's the, that's the problem we're facing as a civilization right now. There's been this really depressing cultural dynamic. There's like something beautiful about this like individual responsibility culture uh, that America kind of pioneers. Um, it produces a lot of innovation, for example. But it gets used to distort what our actions are capable of. We used to deliver everything we manufactured in like glass and wood casings. Um, you know, when people would buy food, it was in reusable containers. Then we discovered plastics. We made a lot of plastics. Plastics are durable. Plastics are cheap. And companies started making tons and tons and tons of plastics. And there was no socialized behavior of what to do with empty containers because that was never a thing before. And so people being people and often relatively thoughtless would just like, oh, I'm finished with this thing. And they would throw it out their car window or they'd throw it on the ground at the park because why would there be trash cans at the park? Everybody two years ago was bringing a blanket and a basket, mm -hmm. right? And now people are bringing a paper bag full of plastic. So everybody just thought, well, nature will take care of it, nature, because if people used to throw their food scraps outside, why not your immortal plastics? And things got disgusting everywhere. And so legislation was put forward to start uh, fining companies so that they had to pay into systems to clean up all the garbage. And the companies, I'm, because we're recording, I'm not naming specific brands because I don't want to have to put this episode through legal review, but the specific companies hired advertising and PR firms to come up with an ad campaign to create public service announcements to get rid of all this trash, and that's where the term litter bug came from. Don't be a litter bug. Who's ever heard that phrase, don't be a litter bug, right? That's an ad slogan. And what that ad slogan was meant to do was shift the onus from the people producing the waste to the consumers 
and to their local governments to provide opportunities for people to throw away their trash in this way. That's when we started creating centralized trash services, not just in cities, but in suburban, exurban, and rural areas. This is all connected to an ad campaign, which got the legislation out of the way. Why do I mention that? It's a perfect example of shifting the responsibility to the individual. When we talk about climate change, we're like, hey, you know, eat less meat, buy less things on Amazon, use more environmentally friendly package. We're taking the same model of pushing things onto the individual and trying to have grassroots advocacy around changing individual actions. But if you look at where carbon emissions come from, individuals play a pretty small part in the overall picture. So if everybody cuts all the meat out of their diet and everybody cuts their energy consumption, everybody buys fewer things, that is less than a third of all carbon emissions. So a few industries are responsible for more than half of all carbon emissions, which means that's where the major changes need to happen. Um, so it can't be grassroots organizing us do it ourselves. It can't be governments mandating to people to change their actions. We know that it's not effective from a public policy perspective. What we need is grassroots activism to demand that companies and governments change their behaviors um, and facilitate ways for us to change ours. And there, listen, there's going to be, I don't think people have any, any idea of, based on the current models, like how bad, how fast the planet's going to get or how dramatic the lifestyle changes that are going to be required are. But I'm really excited. Gosh, yesterday was the global climate strike, children's strike. You had children all over the world marching on governments. And uh, <laughs> there was this beautiful moment where uh, the Congress was talking to this very famous climate advocate named Greta, and they were saying, we're so happy for what you're doing. And uh, she said, basically said, I don't need you to patronize me. I need you to change what you're doing because we have to live in the world after you're gone. And so I'm really excited that I think the next generation actually realizes the stakes. Uh, what I'm modeling my life around is I don't want, if I have great-great-grandchildren, to be ashamed of what I didn't do once I knew. Um, so that's why I tend to be very involved and very vocal in grassroots advocacy that specifically targets policymakers and companies. I think with the political divide in America, we get too stuck on politicizing climate change when the easy win is consumers going after companies. Consum companies are terrified of consumers. And if we, if we mobilize en masse, they don't have to like take it through the Senate that you just have to convince a CEO that it's a danger to their share price and they'll make a change. Um, have you seen the South Park episode about uh, man bear pig, the climate change? <laughs> I, I think I've seen a clip on YouTube. <laughs> it's the newest one, not the okay. old man bear pig. Okay. But anyway, at the end of the I didn't episode, know there were two man bear Satan pigs. has to come back. <laughs> Satan is resurrected from the underworld to defeat uh, man bear pig, who is the product of climate change. Okay. But in order for the, the, the devil needs everybody to <laughs> to surrender their their water bottles, their plastic water bottles, and soy sauce. And they won't do it. And they're uh -huh. just like, no. 
Wow. <laughs> and that's where I feel like we are, is mm-hmm. like everybody, you know, wants to do the right thing for the environment and everyone's very conscious about it. But there are like some fundamental things. It's not us. Like we live in a bubble. Like we want all of these things. Or like we're not talking to us. Like it's a totally different socioeconomic bracket. Mm-hmm. It's like we are not the masses, you know? And so mm-hmm. it's like it's coming up with a, a cheaper alternative to plastic. And we haven't found that yet. I mean, you know, I mean, or, and my question is, have we? And if so, like, what is that company? Like, who is, who is trying to find the economically sound alternative to this stuff? Because that's how you change it. Not like getting all of the elites to like, yeah, to like do that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like making it like, so people in middle America can be environmentally conscious because they can afford to be. Yeah. I think there won't be a solution to climate change that is a new product or manufacturing method. So like I saw now they're making they're making plastic like substances from avocados. And everybody's like, Yay. <laughs> I love avocados. <laughs> So if my spoon is made out of avocados, it's great for the planet, right? Um, avocados are like incredibly water inefficient plants. They're so thirsty. So just because you're making plastic out of avocado pits, one, that's less avocados to eat. Because if you take the time to like just scoop the pit out really nice, it's not profitable to make plastics out of it anymore. Um, and two, you're still making something that doesn't biodegrade super well. So like when we look at biodegradable plastic alternatives, they only biodegrade if they have like fresh air and sunlight. Then we put them in a landfill and they get buried. And then they still last for thousands and hundreds of thousands of years. Um, so the, the tough thing here is it's not that we have to make a better plastic. It's that we have to reorder the global economy fundamentally. Yeah. That's a taller order. Like, this is what's weird. If you, if you look at it systemically, <coughs> healthcare and job security and welfare are all connected to climate. We have to get out of a consumer-driven economic model completely. That's and I'm not talking capitalism versus socialism, like the super exciting uh, DNC 2020 fight. I'm talking about something more fundamental. Um, it is possible that the entire economic growth-driven economy that we use now is incompatible with living on a planet. Um, it might be compatible with like colonizing solar systems if we get that level of technology. Um, But then what we'll always have to do is expand, 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 expand to keep that economic model going. And this is why, it's why I think native people are so important. I had this opportunity recently to go to the Arctic Circle. That was not a carbon neutral trip, flying airplane from LA to Seattle, Seattle to Fairbanks, little prop plane, six-seater from Fairbanks to Arctic Village, which is the home of the Gwich'in people. 
who've lived in that village and that area for 30,000 years. Now, I've done genealogy. I know that you know, my family's been here a couple of hundred years. But the Gwich'in have been in this region for 30,000 years. Then we flew from there in a four-seater plane. Generous to call it a four-seater. <laughs> Generous to call them seats, honestly. Um, all the way up to the Arctic Circle, northernmost part of Alaska, eyesight of the Arctic Ocean. And what was interesting about the Arctic Ocean was it was blue and there was no ice in it. This is the first year that's happened. I was among the first people to ever look at a completely melted Arctic Ocean north of Alaska. So we camped there for a few days. Camping in the Arctic is, even in the summer, colder than I thought it would be. Then we flew back down to Arctic Village and we met with the Gwich'in people. And what was interesting talking to them is we wanted to talk about the Trump administration and oil drilling in the Arctic Village and let's zero on this issue. And they didn't want to just talk about that. They wanted to talk about Trump and Obama and Bush and Clinton and Reagan and Lincoln because from their perspective they were here 30,000 years and for the last 300 our growth economy has been destroying the lands that they lived in harmony with for 30,000 years. For 30,000 years they lived in a symbiotic relationship with the caribou herd that provides most of their subsistence. They knew when to hunt and when not to hunt by observing the herd. They knew when to lean more into plants and when to fish. And they did this by observing the natural world and living in harmony with it. Now I don't want to glamorize native people and say that they have all the answers. There's a, there's a very, very problematic thing that um, white people especially do encountering native cultures is try to emulate everything and almost deify them. Native communities had their own struggles long before we arrived. But there is something about their fundamental approach to being that views themselves as part of the world, as part of nature and not set apart from it in a way that I just don't know that the NASDAQ index enables us to do so. So yeah, we need to get better at manufacturing, but we also need to get better at being present in the natural world and realizing our interdependence with it. Um, and that maybe, maybe people in the Midwest don't need a better plastic. Maybe they need to know that their community is committed to making sure that they're fed and safe as they are committed to making sure that everyone else is as well. Okay, so I didn't have traditions in my family, mm -hmm. really. And I remember hearing of like, oh, the traditions of like your grandparents passing down like recipes and all that stuff and how that's going away because people just aren't learning to cook and there isn't like home ec in school and that type of stuff. That's as far as my brain went of losing out on like generations passing down wisdom. Mm. And I was at a museum and learned about more so Native Americans and mm. 
working with the land and like seasons for like burning the fields or harvesting certain um, things that I can't even name. Um, yeah. But I, I can't help but think that just the lack of education and these things being passed on to generation generation is really removing us from that firsthand experience of understanding the land and how it works and mm. being able to treat it correctly and honor it and all that stuff. And I'm wondering if anything I'm saying makes sense. Mm-hmm. And also if you have any thoughts or um, ways that you think those things could be solved and or if that could help just us more from like a global standpoint become more invested if we were educated in that way? That's a really good question. Whoa. <laughs> that I am, I am literally afraid to answer. Um, and I don't get nervous about answering most questions, but that's a juicy one. Let me start with a sketch. Well, let's go back to Arctic Village in Alaska. The Gwich'in people, they've been here for 30,000 years. They have traditions and culture passed down, elder to child, elder to child, through that entire era when uh, they first encountered Europeans. They did not have written language at all. Their entire wisdom tradition was oral. And it's dying, not because their population is shrinking, it isn't, but because there is Wi-Fi at the high school. There's no internet, there's no cell phone signals, there's nothing in Arctic Village, there's no roads. I mean, in a three hour flight, once you get north of Fairbanks, there's nothing but trees and lakes and tundra. There are no roads, there are no buildings, there are no signs of humanity until you get to Arctic Village. And when you get to the high school, there's a bunch of teenagers standing on the ramp to the front door because it's the only place you can get Wi-Fi from outside the building. And they're on their phones and they're tweeting and they're Snapchatting and they're doing all the things that we do. And the elders are so frustrated and angry. And they said to us as we came in, you're turning our children into you with no idea of the earth or the past, only the impulse of now. Where does that impulse come from? Well, it's interesting. When I talk to my African-American friends, they have tremendous cultural wisdom and tradition passed down from generation to generation. When I talk to my, my Latinx friends, in the same way, they have rich, multi-generational family traditions and awareness. The only people I talk to who feel cut off in time are my fellow white people. And I've been studying that a lot lately at the direction and advice of friends of color in my life and scholars of color. Climate change, generational amnesia, capitalism, all of these things are linked and related why do we want to forget the past so desperately? Well, because I don't know about you, but my family owned people. But before my family owned people, 
my family was Irish. And my family came to America and they were a despised minority at the bottom of the socioeconomic rung. And then there were black people in the South who were literally owned. And so if you're Irish, well, like at least you weren't a slave. Yeah, you know, you know American history, you know that didn't go well. We fought a war over the right to own people. And the South lost. And then a strange thing happened. The newly emancipated, very poor black slaves started to build communities with people like my ancestors, poor Europeans. And they started to lobby together for, the, for basic rights. And that was terrifying to ruling Europeans in the United States. And so there's always been kind of a, a European supremacy for some time, kind of born out of the Roman Empire. This is old stuff for Europeans. But America took whiteness and they made a, 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 a contract. And they said, hey, you Italians and you Irish, you're not British, you're not French, you're not German, you're not Dutch but you could be white. And if you're white, well, we're, we're not gonna give you a social safety net or anything, but we will give you the right to vote. We'll give you your own water fountains. We'll make it the force of law that these currently black neighbors of yours aren't even allowed to be in the same spaces as you. So at some point in my specific ancestry, and I've looked this up genealogically, one of my ancestors decided that we weren't Irish. We were white Americans. And once we became white Americans, all the Scots-Irish traditions of my family were scrubbed from the records. All those traditions stopped because there was that association with being Irish, Scots-Irish especially. That's the poorest people in Scotland and the poorest people in Ireland who went back and forth because they couldn't afford to be in either place. They came to America a lot because they were literally starving to death. At some point, they decided to be white and to erase their history. And that's after they owned people. And then they did horrific things in service of Jim Crow laws. My family split in two. One half went to Pennsylvania and Colorado. The other half to Alabama, to the deep south. I'm sure if social media existed back then, I would be horrified by the actions that my ancestors took in lynch mobs, in the KKK. I think our in the nowness for white Americans is a way of anesthetizing, of narcotizing the great and profound, dare I say, sins that we've committed as a people group against almost every people group on the planet, but especially black Americans and Native Americans. To remember our traditions is to remember not just defeating the Nazis in World War II, but hanging black men from trees in the Southeast and the Midwest and the Northeast. Even here in Southern California, 
as recently as 70 years ago, there was a thriving presence of the KKK, literal white supremacists. Do we need the wisdom of generations? I absolutely believe that we do. But for us as white people to access that wisdom, there must be a great reckoning and a great atonement of where all this land and where all this money came from. And when we accept that and acknowledge it and do something about it, will actually also help with plastics and will also help with climate change and will actually be able to live in harmony with the earth because we can never live in the harmony with the earth until we can also live in harmony with the other people who live on it. And there comes a moment in every Ask Science Mike podcast where me going doo 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 seems like really obscene. So I name that first so it's slightly less awkward. Uh, can you scientifically define a soul? <laughs> can you define a soul scientifically? Science's job isn't to define things. Ha ha ha! Science's job is to test things. So part of what you need to do to do science is to define something specifically. So if we were to test the idea of a soul scientifically, step one would be defining what is a soul. Step two would be defining an experiment that would allow us to test for the presence or absence of thing that we just defined, right? Um, that's how science works. There was a time we didn't know what germs were, right? So we were like, we have, why is this illness happened? Could it be this mechanism? Could it be, you see what I mean? Like the whole nature science is to have these shifting definitions that lead to hypotheses you can test. Why don't we have a lot of good soul science? I think would be an interesting place to take that. What I have found as a person who is to religion what a lot of people are to sports or comic books, I'm just into religions. Like, even when I was an atheist, I was just super into religions because, like, there's a lot of religious people, and there always have been. So when I, like, lost my faith, I was like, what the hell? Why are people so into, like, invisible things that we literally have never seen in any experiment or observation ever. It fascinated me. And as I was like on this binge research series, and believe me, when I get like into researching, I go hard, right? Uh, so I started studying world religions. I studied the, I tried to read the sacred text of every major world religion sequentially. Uh, and chronologically, I started with the earliest ones we had. And uh, what I found was when people say God or spirit or soul, no two people ever mean the same thing. So even like in, if they're in the same faith tradition, if you, if you get a room of people together and you say, who or what is God, 
they'll like group think to a collective answer in the room, especially if there's like an authority figure in the room who can like do kind of orthodoxy checks. But if you get people individually, you know, I said if there's 7 billion people on earth, there's like 9 billion ideas about God. Um, and I think that's true of souls as well. If we mean like, what, like an immaterial essence of a person that is independent of their physicality and so can persist beyond their current arrangement of molecules and atoms, which itself is like very impermanent. You know what I mean? Like we're all literally trading atoms and molecules right now. Like we're all going to leave with a little bit of each other that we didn't have when we got here. I just think that's kind of cool and weird. Um, it's, it's just hard for me to get my head around scientifically. Now, if I think like kind of mystically, yeah, souls get really interesting. But you got to be able to test. And when we've tried to test souls, like some of the earliest things, they, scientists tried to weigh a soul. And the way they do that is you'd like put someone dying on a scale and wait. And then at the moment of their death, see if they got lighter, right? Several times they did turns out to be like methodological flaws in the data, but it was really exciting for us. Like, whoa, a soul weighs 104 grams. Wow. People have tried to photograph souls. People have tried all sorts of things. Anytime we've gotten something that looks like kind of interesting, it's turned out there's been wild methodological errors in the experiment. So I would say today we don't have a defined enough idea of what a soul could be and therefore don't have rigorous experiments or observation to test for the presence of a soul, um, which means science won't like bail us out in a lot of moral dilemmas involving personhood if we attach souls to it. Recently or in your career, is there a question that was asked of you hmm. that you answered that you either regret your answer or you wish you could change? And if so, what is that? What was that topic? What was that question? That's a tough question. I've been on such a journey in therapy about self-acceptance and giving myself grace <laughs> that I might have to roll back my self-growth clock a little bit to, to frame that question well. I think early on, constantly, I think there's a reason I start all these by saying, just so we're clear, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about, right? It's to lower the stakes. Like, this is entertaining or not. And when people ask questions that are like vulnerable and from their lives, I think a lot of people have never had someone really listen to them. So I just really like sitting in like a room full of people, sometimes very big rooms, and active listening and watching people see what happens when you just listen to someone share pain without interrupting or correcting. And I feel pretty good about all of those. We were in, I was doing an Ask Science Mike just like this at a university in Dublin. And um, had the Book of Kells there, it was really cool. One of the oldest uh, Bibles in Ireland. And uh, a young man stood up and talked about autism, how it impacted his life, and asked me for like advice on how to relate to people. 
being a person with autism. And what was interesting is like, that was not the first or the last time someone asked me about autism. And sometimes when people would ask me about autism, they would ask me how I dealt with autism. And I would always say what I said to this young man. It's like, I can't imagine what it's like for you as an autistic person. I wouldn't even want to try. I wouldn't want to minimize your perspective by pretending to know I know what it's like to have autism. So I just want you to know like I hear you and I appreciate you and thank you for sharing. And then like last year, <laughs> like I found out I have autism and people would email me a lot and ask me for advice on how to deal with autism, assuming I was autistic. So I had all these people in the community who were autistic, like saying inadvertently, like you have autism. And every single time I'd be like, whoa, no, not me. And I really regret reflexively dismissing their insight because by doing that, I was like boxing in what an autistic person was in my own mind by saying it couldn't be me. And in doing so, I feel like I, in my own way, like further marginalized autistic people for several years thinking I was being so loving and supporting. If I could do it over again, I would have sat with it longer. I would have paid more attention to the pattern and I would have treated each response with more dignity and less sympathy than I did. Um, in those moments, I was like, how can I, how can I comfort this poor person with autism instead of doing what I say is my job and what I say I care about is holding each question with dignity and grace and offering a sincere response. Yeah, I regret those. Thank you. That's a good question. Uh, I was talking with a friend recently about um, mental health. And uh, one of the things that we were talking about is to kind of like shift the discussion. Um, in her mind, she was arguing that it should be um, reframed as mental diversity hmm. rather than mental illness or hmm. mental health. And I thought that was really fascinating because I never thought about it that way. And But then talking with somebody who grew up with a parent who had mental illness found that troubling because, um, you know, how do we decide when something needs to be fixed hmm. just because it doesn't fit into current models? Hmm. And... So I guess it's just like, should there be more of a shift in the national discussion, you know, to talking about it as mental diversity or, um, you know, is it dangerous to start thinking about where we really draw the line between when something needs to be treated and when we should just stop trying to fit everybody in a one size, size fits all society? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I have like no distance from this question. Oh. I've been on a really challenging mental health journey. I'd like to say for two years, but I, I think if I say that I'm flattering myself. As a young person, I, I wrestled constantly with suicidality. Um, I tried to die by suicide many times. People who make repeat attempts to die by suicide 
are typically viewed through a lens of mental illness. And that illness versus health question is tough. When I talk to my friend Hillary, who's a therapist, and I say the word healthy, whenever she repeats something back to me, she'll usually, instead of say healthy, unhealthy, say adaptive, maladaptive. Like, is this, is this helping you thrive or getting in the way of your thriving? But she won't use healthy, unhealthy very often. I think that's an interesting that she never said anything to me. I've just noticed that that's the framing she always uses. You know, I more recently uh, was having panic attacks and went to a, that's when I got diagnosed with autism and then I, I was still in trouble and I went to trauma therapy and got diagnosed with CPTSD and I was like, CPTSD? PTSD requires like trauma. I've never gone to war. And then my trauma therapist told me that's not how trauma works. Your brain doesn't decide whether things are traumatic or not based on the presence of a gun or an explosion, but rather how afraid you were. And as a child, I was afraid a lot, very afraid. And that left marks in my brain. Um, I'm wildly empathetic just because I've hurt so much in my life. I tend to be very passive except in matters of suffering where I become very passionate because I know what it's like to suffer and I don't want anyone to hurt as I have hurt. I have a job like anybody else. Actually, my job's pretty good. I make podcasts for a living, but sometimes I get such fear and anxiety over the words I say and how they would affect people that my heart beats so fast it put me in the hospital. So am I like mentally ill or am I mentally healthy? I think some of the things that would make you most concerned about my mental health are some of the things that make me the best at hearing people. I read an anthropologist once who said that schizophrenics in Central and South America only hear encouraging voices. So they have the same disorder, but they never get institutionalized because they basically hear someone saying, I love you, you're going to do great today. But schizophrenic people in the United States and Europe are haunted by accusing voices with the same underlying neurological condition. Somehow our social framing affects people. When I look at global mental health, if we're to use that term, research tells us right now everyone on the world has never been more unhappy than they are now culturally. Every culture in the world is in a decline of happiness other than Central and South American cultures which have never been happier. Somehow the way that we frame our lives and frame our experiences, words affect us more than we think. And I think if people would have asked me two years ago, I would have said, no, mental illness is simply those things which clinically impair one's ability to function well in society. And that's the diagnostic criteria, and I stand by it. But now I think maybe, I think maybe that's what creates mental illness. I went to a trauma therapist to be cured of PTSD. And what I learned instead is that my job is to learn how to live with it. 
to support myself well. In one particularly <coughs> trying session, I passed out on the couch. I was so activated by a memory. And my trauma therapist told me that when our brains store trauma, a snapshot of who we are is kind of wired into the brain in that moment. And so this memory I had was of myself as a seven-year-old child being force-fed dog feces on the playground. It's been a long time, and I still cry about it. And I thought, when he told me that, I said, well, Ron, that's my therapist's name, our job is to get the get the little boy out of my brain. And Ron said, no, our job is for you to learn to protect him. Because the reason I get so excited about science and curiosity is because that little boy is in there. And the reason I get angry when I see the treatment of immigrants in this country is because it makes me see our government as bullies. The reason I care so much about feminism is the patriarchy just looks like a bully to me. If I were to rip out those painful memories of my past, I'd be a different person. And the work for me has been learning to have a, a generous, kind framing of my own life and my own pain. And I wonder if with people encountering all sorts of diagnosable mental conditions in our society, we're faced not with how they have the potential to not fit in, but instead with supportive community. Well, actually, I think there's a village in the Netherlands that's doing just that. Instead of putting people in asylums, they take people with severe debilitating mental conditions and they move in with retired couples. And there's no elevated rates of crime or violence in this community. There are certainly interesting dinners. <laughs> but somehow when the message is not, you're dangerous and they need to be separated, but you're different, but you're part of us. It reframes how all the varieties of brains that function, function. I think the most poignant example I can think of is every time we have another fucking mass shooting in this country. And everyone starts saying mental illness, mental illness, mental illness. And if you look at the statistics around mental illness in this country, then you understand that people suffering from mental illness are far more likely to be victims of crime than perpetrators. It makes me think that you have shared with us a great wisdom that perhaps the time and the era for the term mental illness really has passed and belongs in the past. So I was raised in the South, Southern Baptist as well, and still have family there, still have a lot of roots there. And I feel like I've been in LA for 10 years, I've sort of gone through my own, am going through my own deconstruction from that. Um, and I feel like this popular kind of thing people come back to when you're talking about, was Jesus real? Was like what he said real? Um, is that, I think C.S. Lewis said it was like, 
he was either a liar, a lunatic, <laughs> or Lord. <laughs> Which I know you've heard this. Um, I don't. I don't know what the question is. I guess it's just like, what's your thought on that? Because I feel like it's a pretty like, okay. it's like, well, that that's real. You know, mm. like you can go through like what you feel or like your questions are like, yeah, I get it. But like he said he was the son of God. So was that real or was he just a crazy person or what? And I feel like it's just kind of this nail or something that mm. gets put out there. And it's like, yeah, OK, yeah, I don't know. Mm. Real easy one. Who was Jesus? <laughs> Very easy question. I don't know. <laughs> um, now that's interesting. Well, let's first start with the whole forced trichotomy thing. Like, if I were to say to everyone in here, you're either my best friend, my worst enemy, or a terrible person. That's pretty manipulative because there's a lot of other options than those three. And when I'm setting up that way, there's really only one option. Anyone would be like, well, <laughs> I don't want to be his worst enemy. I'm not a, and I'm not a terrible person. I guess I'm his best friend. So if you're like liar, lunatic, Lord, I feel like is that same kind. Of, I feel like that's really dishonest, manipulative language. I will tell you that there was a time in my life that Jesus was part of the Trinity. He was God's incarnate son. He rose from the grave three days after being crucified. He took a three-day post-death vacay to hell and stole the keys to death. And just like you do after you die and you're God. And then... I became an atheist, which was typified by a meme of Jesus knocking on a door, and it says, knock, knock, who's there? Jesus. What do you want? I want you to let me in so I can save you. Save me from what? From what am I going to do to you if you don't let me in? <laughs> like, that was how I viewed Christian theology as an atheist. Just like, what a strange, God loves you so much that he killed his son so he doesn't have to kill you. That just sounds like abusive gaslighting. So then I was like hard no on faith. And then uh, if some of you might know the story, some of you won't. Uh, I was an atheist and I was praying on the beach once and saw God. Just lost everybody. Uh, I saw, uh, I saw so what, so what happened though. It's so what I experienced. I saw a light. Um, moved toward me, and then I felt mystical union with the divine. And uh, the, the only caveat there would be uh, I was an atheist at the time. So I thought, like I was crying, and it was beautiful. I told Jenny she was very excited. What I thought was like, I have brain cancer. Like you see lights and feel divine union when there's a tumor pressing on your thalamus. So I both like started having spiritual conversations with my friends again and asked about my brain health from a medical professional. And uh, yeah, there's no, no tumors or anything. So what did I do with that? Here's where I'm at. You can view the world scientifically and discover things, but no one can sustain a scientific worldview. 
Anyone who claims they do are full of shit. Everybody has their superstition. Everybody has their myth. Everybody has their mystery. Mine is the Jesus thing. I remain obsessed with it. I remain less controlling over it than I once was, but I'm still really into Jesus-centered spirituality. But, you know, if somebody wants to talk to me about Buddha, I'm in. Somebody like has some insights from the Quran. I love it. Like I'm not a my way or the highway. I'm just like, no, this is, you know, some people like Star Wars. Some people like Harry Potter. Some people like Jesus. Some people like Muhammad. Some people like Richard Dawkins. What I just want everyone to be is honest that nobody has a clue and what we're doing. When we talk about spirituality to me, what we're talking about is the human experience. And in that way, it's like beautiful and enlivening and wonderful. If you, I feel like if anyone knew what happened in the faith tradition they care about, it would be disappointing. It would be like someone who loves Disney working at Disneyland and watching Mickey Mouse take his head off. Like it's horrible and traumatizing. No, just let me enjoy the mouse. And that might sound dishonest, but like my friends who are atheists who say they're like empiricists, like if I wait long enough, I'll catch them in a mythic superstition. I've got a friend who's a um, physicist at an institution I won't name, who um, always blows dice before he throws them. I'm like, you're telling me you think blowing the dice is going to materially affect the outcome. He's like, well, of course not. I mean, why do you blow the dice? I don't know. Because we're storytelling animals. Because we need story to navigate the world. And so where I'm at is like, lean into a story that makes you excited about living. For me, for my life, the idea that like God in some way, infinite mystery, suffered with us is really compelling. I like it. Do I think if we checked forensically that there was this like three-day miracle thing? I don't know. Probably not. I'm still into it. And I used to think I was weird because of that because I grew up in a really strict fundamentalist faith tradition. But what I'm learning by studying sociology is that's the normal thing both in this country and around the world. That we have on one hand religious fundamentalists and on the other hand hardcore materialists who are telling us leaning into mystery is bad and something we should be guilty over when in fact it might actually be the single most defining characteristic of our species. The thing that makes us us and not dolphins or elephants or chimpanzees is the power of mythic storytelling. Myths, by the way, doesn't mean it's not true. So in the most disappointing way possible, I'm going to say liar, lunatic, lord. I don't know and I don't care. But personally, I still love that historical figure and the stories around Jesus anyway, because it makes my life better. If God suffered, 
Maybe it's not so bad that I do too. I don't even know how much uh, there is on this topic, but as far as sexuality, gender, um, a list of things that would potentially be on a spectrum that we're learning yes. about being on a spectrum. Um, I'm just curious as to your thoughts of as you're maybe digging into your own life of how you've seen that as you learn more about yourself and as we're kind of collectively, I think, learning about all of those things mm -hmm. and analyzing those in ourselves like, oh, there isn't, it's not, you know, it's not black or white. It's all a lot of gray. Um, so yeah, I'm curious your thoughts about that. That's a very broad question. Yeah, Is there yeah. any way to drill oh, down yeah. anything more specifically? I mean, I could do critical gender theory for a while. <laughs> Queer theory. Specific, I guess. Are there any recommendations on where to read more or dig into that more? Okay. Uh, it would depend on where you're digging. Um, so sexuality. Sexuality. Uh, yeah, that's pretty easy. As far as we can tell in the sciences, sexual orientation is a socialized construct largely. This is gonna. This really rubs up against people's fundamental notions of self, so it's a little dangerous to wade into sometimes. But what humans are born with is not an orientation. What humans are born with is a propensity to seek genital stimulation, like all sexually reproducing animals. What's fascinating is if you look in the entire animal kingdom, including our nearest relatives, primates, Apes specifically. There's straight or gay is not a thing. There's genital stimulation. They're all into it, um, and their their animals are into any way genitals get stimulated is a good day. Um, and then we put culture on top of it and like have all these prohibitions around genital stimulation which is probably good in a lot of ways. Like there's a whole family of mi microbes that specialize in reproducing with general contact. So we wouldn't want to be wildly indiscriminate about it. So some of these, in some ways, our like cultures around sexuality at times have probably served us biologically. But we do have varying propensity to seek genital stimulation in the context of different primary and secondary sex characteristics and presentations that are then reinforced or penalized in our environment and the interaction of those things creates basically a dice roll for what you're attracted to. A nature plus nurture. That is not the same as saying orientation is a choice or has no basis in nature. It absolutely does. Yeah, so, but the, the idea that there are people, some people are straight, some people are gay, that's just how it is. In my opinion, straight and gay are highly socialized limitations on the underlying biology. In the same way that um, <coughs> binary gender doesn't have a biological basis. That's a sociological construct on top of the biology. Gender's actually relatively ambiguous across populations. Here's the problem. If you look at what we associate with men and women or male and female, we think there's like, there's this or that. And what you actually have are two population bell curve distributions that overlap. So there actually are a lot of people who, 
in their life experience and their presentation, most people fit comfortably in a binary thought of gender, but not an overwhelming majority. There's a significant group of the population that because of genetic, physical, neurological features, or all three, don't fit cleanly into either gender. The easiest example of that, of course, is intersex people. People who have a mix of classically male and female sex organs. But you also have people, there are women who have a Y chromosome, and there are men who have two X chromosomes. And what's interesting when you look at those population groups is they often uh, are, are queer in their orientation. So even though they look relatively classically like their corresponding inverted <laughs> genetic group, um, their attraction layers are more complicated, a different set of DNA. You have people with multiple X chromosomes. You have occasionally have people with two Y chromosomes, so that's quite dangerous. Um, when we look at the brains of trans people, we find that they have a mix of brain structures from what we would call men or women. So for me as a person who loves science and is into biology, what we have right now in the queer revolution is our cultural traditions starting to catch up with what's always been biologically true. Um, and I think that's important and necessary work because we also have data that tells us that for those people, let's spitball, this is not a scientific number, but let's call it, let's call it one in four people roughly who don't fit cleanly in binary orientation or binary gender, it has been incredibly detrimental to their mental health to be forced in these categories the whole time. And that cultures that don't have such binary notions don't have the same levels of social ostracization, nor suicidality, nor um, violence against gender ambiguous and orientation, mixed orientation people. So I think the problem is not nature, the problem is the scripts we use. And I have, I have a wildly deconstructed notion of gender and sexuality, which is very strange for someone who comfortably identifies as a man and is married to a woman. Um, but I'm aware of like, well, no, but that's just, I just fit in a certain place in a population curve, but I should be very careful not to normalize and universalize my experience <coughs> across all people because the science doesn't support it. Thank you, everybody. If you'd like to be a part of this discussion that I'm having about what Ask Science Mike becomes in the future and how we make that I'm having that conversation with my patrons on Patreon. Uh, you can go to AskScienceMike.com and click the Become a Patron link, and you'll get directed right to Patreon. Uh, as little as a dollar as a month, ah, as little as one dollar per month uh, gets you into that community, and uh, you can help me decide what I'm doing next in a, a smaller and more intimate setting. I'd like to thank Greg Nordine uh, for his work editing this episode. Brent Cradle uh, for hosting uh, this episode's recording session, Caitlin Hermstad uh, for producing and organizing Ask Science Mike, and of course my patrons for making my work possible. Thank you for listening, everyone. 
and I can't wait to talk to you next week. Yeah.